number of new faces this morning, so just a little bit about what we're doing on Sunday mornings these three weeks. The distance between us and God is great. He is in heaven and we are upon earth. And we would never have known God if he had not chosen to reveal himself to us. The distance between us and him is that great. But God has drawn back the curtain, as it were, so that we might gaze upon him and know him, that we might enter into a relationship with him. And the question that we are considering is, how has God done that? How may we know God? Do we know God by gazing inside of our hearts? Do we know God by looking intently at a forest of trees? And the scripture is clear that in our consciences, in nature, in God's disposings, his providence in history, we do know God to some degree. But if we are truly to know God, if we are to be related to him, if he is to be our God and we are to be his people, something more is needed to bridge that gap so that we may know him. And the bridge that God has put in place is his son. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has come to make his Father known to us. Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how has Christ made, him, made the Father known to us? We looked last week at the fact that in his very person, he has made known to us the Father. He is the Son in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And so to know him is to know the Father. He has revealed the Father to us by his teachings. A great many of the things that Jesus of Nazareth taught us while he was upon earth opened up the book for us to know his heavenly Father. And then finally, the way that he has revealed the Father to us is by his work, what he has done. His works of power show us something about God. But the main thing that the Gospels focus on is, upon, is his work during that final week of his life, his suffering and death and resurrection. And so in the cross, the glory of God is on display to an unparalleled degree. If you want to see the glory of God, the cross is the greatest picture, the most clear window through which we could look to see and know God. And it is by the cross that Jesus Christ brings us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. So last week we looked at the love of God, the glory of his love displayed to us in the cross and how we ought to live then in light of what we see in the cross. Today we will look at the righteousness of God displayed in the cross and how we are to live in a world ruled over by this righteous God. God's righteousness is revealed to us in the scriptures. As we read the scriptures, we come to the conclusion that he is righteous. What does that mean, that God is righteous? Well, look with me at Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Maybe we'll start in verse 30. Paul's preaching to Gentiles at Mars Hill. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Righteousness is what we expect from a judge in a courtroom. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He is a judge and he acts in righteousness. Genesis 18.25 makes the same point. Far be it from you, Abraham says, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death along with the wicked in Sodom, so that the righteous fare as the wicked do. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is righteous? We expect righteousness from judges in courtrooms. We expect that the verdict they hand down will match the crime that was committed. We expect that where a crime was committed, that the judge will hold the guilty person accountable and meet out the sentence that is required. But to treat the righteous and the wicked alike, to rain down hellfire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah that is inhabited by both the righteous and the wicked, would God do that if he were a righteous judge? This is Abraham's question to God. To put both of them to death, Lord? This is not just. The righteous deserve a separate outcome at the trial than the wicked do. And so God's righteousness, the best definition that I can come up with, at least to this point in my study of Scripture, is that God's righteousness is that characteristic of God as judge, whereby he is in himself perfect rightness, justice, fairness, equity. And he is the standard of that. God's righteousness is that characteristic of God as judge, whereby he is in himself perfect rightness, justice, fairness, and equity. God's righteousness, though, is not something that he sits back on his throne and possesses in silence and stillness. God, in his righteousness, acts. And his righteousness actually compels him to act. I think that's the first blank you have there. God's righteousness compels him to act. If God is perfectly righteous, if he is intent on handing out the verdicts that are due, God cannot sit back idly and be thought of as righteous in this world. In a world such as ours, God cannot just sit back and be thought of as righteous. His righteousness actually compels him to stand up and act, to do something, to sort out the injustices that occur in our world. And there's two primary ways in the scripture that God acts in righteousness. The first one, if you'd like to turn to it, we see in Revelation 19 verse 11. You see it throughout the scripture. It's particularly prominent in the Psalms, but I think we can see it most clearly here in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is the prophecy, the prediction of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful 
and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Here's Christ ready to return to this earth on a white horse in righteousness. He is going to fight against and make war with the sinners who inhabit this earth. God responds to the sin and unrighteousness that fills our world. He responds to it by judging, which looks like making war. And all of that is done in righteousness. In other words, God's wrath and judgment falls to cut out, like you would cut out a cancer. It falls to cut out the injustice and those who perpetrate it to excise them from his world. God's righteousness acts in judgment. You can think about what Paul, what Paul says in Romans 1. Mankind has a clear vision of the glory of God as creator in this world, but nevertheless, he suppresses that knowledge. And he instead exchanges God's glory, the image of the incorruptible God, for the image of corruptible created matter. That's a massive injustice for people to bow down and worship the creatures rather than the creator. Is God going to let that stand? Is he going to let human beings go on worshiping creation when he is the one who justly deserves the worship? And the answer is no. It's not right and so God acts. He acts in wrath. He acts by pouring out, Romans 1 verse 18, his wrath upon unrighteous people. He cannot ignore the fact that his supremely and altogether majestic person is ignored by human beings. And so that injustice that people have committed against God and ignoring the one who ought to be the center of our attention, that injustice he meets with his justice. But God's righteousness not only judges, but it also delivers Psalm 31, if you'd like to turn there and look at it. Psalm 31, verse 1, God's right, God acts in righteousness to deliver. Psalm 31, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Think about God judging unrighteousness. Any refuge in God for people like us? No. We've joined the rebellion. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. How can the psalmist pray, in your righteousness, deliver me? God's righteousness doesn't deliver anybody if we're sinners, right? How can we take refuge in a God like that? God responds to injustice, to unrighteousness with deliverance. God's people compel him, oh, sorry, God's righteousness compels him to deliver those who face miseries and injustices that they don't deserve. And actually, God's righteousness of judging and his righteousness of delivering are actually two sides of the same coin. You think about a courtroom, there are always two parties in a courtroom, the one who has been wronged and the one who wronged. And when the judge hands down his righteous verdict, wrath falls upon the one who has wronged. 
and deliverance and vindication falls upon the one who was wronged. Righteousness condemns the wicked and it saves the innocent. And so in condemning sinners, God himself is vindicated. He shows that their pursuit of themselves instead of him, he shows that that was wrong. He shows that his righteousness, his righteousness delivers him. It proves to the world that God is the one who ought to be the center of all things. Here's an example. God looks at matters such as the crucifixion of his son. Evil men murdered an innocent man. It wasn't right. Is God going to let that stand? Or will he set right that injustice? No, his righteousness acts to save innocent people from death. And so that's why Jesus did not stay dead. The wages of sin is death. But he had no sin. So God did not allow him to remain in the grave. He raised him. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that he was raised in an act of vindication. God proved to all the world by the resurrection that Jesus Christ was righteous. He set the record straight. Now, by what standard does God act when he acts in righteousness? He is righteous. And that righteousness touches us in our world. How does he determine who to pour out his wrath upon and who to vindicate? For some, God's righteousness means judgment. For some, it means salvation. And in all of this, God himself is the standard by which he makes the determinations of which to judge and which to save. If God determines to judge a person, it is because it is righteous that he be judged. If God determines to save a person, it is because it is only right that he do so. And that standard by which he acts is himself. Whatever he does is right. Now, God's righteousness has been displayed throughout history. We have seen it in many different circumstances. For example, God has given us his law. God's righteousness was revealed when he gave his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. His law is a reflection of his nature. The standard of justice and equity that he required of his people is actually quite breathtaking when you read through God's law. An eye for an eye. Not an entire life for an eye and not a fingernail for an eye. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We actually don't like that standard of righteousness. If someone takes your eye, you want to take his life. Or if you take someone's eye, you want to only pay by a fingernail. But God says an eye for an eye. God's righteousness is revealed in the law. The corruption of human society reveals God's righteousness. The fact that our society is so bad today actually shows God's righteousness. And you can read about this in Romans 1. God says that his wrath is revealed against mankind. His judging righteousness is it's on display in our world today to see. How is it on display? 
Mankind has regarded the infinitely valuable and majestic creator as worthy of less honor and glory than the creatures he's made. We worship ourselves and not him. How unjust. But God's response to that is actually just. We want ourselves to be the center of the world. So you know what he does? He lets us have it. And we run through this world ourselves being the center and what happens as a result. Beginning of the world, God is the center. It's all very good. We insist on being the center. And now the world is the mess that it is. And that is God's righteous judgment upon us. It is a revelation of God's judging righteousness upon this world. That people would rather not have God and so he lets them have that. He lets them have a situation of being enslaved to their own debasing passions. How appropriate it is that God do that. How righteous. We see this in the vindication of the martyrs. Revelation 15 and 16, you can read that this afternoon. John sees a great company of those who've been martyred standing upon a sea, a red sea. They sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. What righteous acts? The next chapter, the third angel pours out his bowl upon the rivers and the springs of water, and they become blood. Why blood? I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, You are just, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you have brought about these judgments. They have shed the blood of your saints, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The penalty matches the crime. We see this in the vindication of the martyrs, and we see it in the second coming of Christ. We read Revelation 19, verse 11. The heavens will open. Jesus Christ will return on a horse to execute the fierce wrath of God upon mankind who have persisted for so long in their rebellion against him. The scripture says that in righteousness he judges and makes war. And I'll read now Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful. And true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, 
the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him as who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That is what God's righteousness looks like on display. Display in wrath, judging righteousness against human rebellion and sin. But these are not the greatest displays of God's righteousness. The greatest display of God's righteousness in history was the cross. And if you would, turn with me to Romans 1. We'll finish up the rest of our time this morning. Romans 1, Romans 3. In the cross, we see the greatest revelation of God's righteousness on display. It was the greatest display of God's righteousness in the history of the world. And it actually was the greatest display of both his judging righteousness and his saving righteousness. Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel as a self-righteous Pharisee. Because the gospel let human beings go free who deserved God's justice. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Because, for, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the righteousness of, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, displayed. You want to see God's righteousness? It's revealed in the gospel. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. How does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? It seems easy to see that in Re Revelation 19. How do we see it at the cross? Where is God's righteousness revealed to us? Let's turn the page over to Romans chapter 3. And I want to read verses 21, 25, and 26. And you will see that Revelation 21, 25, and 26 are the beginning and the ending of a little section here in Romans. It begins and it ends on the same note. You find that note, and that will give you a clue as to why we turn to this passage with this question in our minds. How does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? Verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It was revealed in the law, but now it's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And let's look at verse 25. Speaking of Jesus Christ from verse 24, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show the righteousness of God. 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you want to know how the cross manifests or shows or displays the righteousness of God, Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 give you that answer. So let's look at these verses together. Okay. How does this work? Write down Proverbs 17 verse 15 and just listen to it. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. This verse sets forth a principle by which God assesses the activities of judges of the earth. We'll sometimes read about a dramatic miscarriage of justice in the courts today. The guilty go free with just a slap on the wrist. Worse sinners are hailed as righteous by legislatures and courts and citizens alike. They are ambassadors of justice rather than sinners as God pronounces them to be. And Proverbs tells us that God looks upon situations like that where judges condemn the righteous and let the guilty go free. God looks upon that and he says that it is an abomination in my sight. God detests judges who do not judge righteously. Why does God abhor such verdicts? I told you we'd be in Romans 1 and 3. You can stay there or you can listen to Exodus 34 or turn there. Exodus 34, God tells us why he abhors just judges who acquit the guilty and who condemn the righteous. This is when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he has said to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord passed by before him. Exodus 34 verse 6. And proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a God merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It is against the very nature of God to declare sinners just. The text states that for God to pronounce a guilty sinner guiltless, forgiven, pardoned, worthy of eternal paradise is impossible. He will by no means clear the guilty. We speak of the great doctrine of the omnipotence of God. Nothing is too hard for God, we say. Well, the scripture is very clear that there are some things that are too hard for God or that he will not do, that he cannot do. He is bound by his very nature so that he cannot sin. And in this case, Exodus 34, as a God of righteousness, he is bound by his very nature so that he is unable to justify the wicked. Now that means that we have no hope. 
There is no hope of any of us as ungodly being justified. He will by no means clear the guilty. Do you realize there's no hope for you before a God of unfaltering and unswerving righteousness? When on judgment day, you prepare to enter into God's courtroom, we all may know ahead of time what his verdict will be. It will be condemnation for all of us. It's impossible that the verdict will come back as anything except guilty because a God of righteousness is unable to render any other verdict. He cannot because he is righteous. God's righteousness acts towards mankind, but by virtue of the fact that every man is sinful, every man may expect that every action of God's righteousness towards him will be an action of judging righteousness. Man has no reason to hope that God will act towards him with saving righteousness. And so when the Psalms speak to us, like Psalm 31 verse 1, in your righteousness deliver me, O Lord, our consciences ought to say to us, that verse is not for you. You on your own cannot take that verse to yourself. Every action of God's righteousness towards us on our own is judging righteousness. News of God's righteousness then, as we read it in the Psalms, is not a comfort to us as sinners. The Psalms ought to terrify us if we read them apart from Jesus Christ. The Psalms speak to us about a God that we stand before who will not receive us. The only righteousness from God that we may expect is His judging righteousness. And if God conducts His world according to the standard of His own righteousness, then we are doomed. We are doomed to eternal condemnation. But I want you to look at one word, one hope-filled word in Romans chapter 1 again. Romans chapter 1. I wish that this word were understood by every person. I've heard so many people who don't even get what Paul's saying here. Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because for it is the power of God. Paul is not saying that the gospel is like dynamite that does amazing things. The word power means ability. And what this verse is saying is this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it enables God to save everyone who believes, regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile. Regardless of whether they've kept the law or have eaten pigs, it enables God to save everyone who believes. God cannot save any of us apart from the gospel. But in the gospel, suddenly God is endued with a power he didn't have before. God is made able. He is empowered by the gospel, by what Jesus did. He is empowered to save believers. How does that work? And how does that display God's righteousness? We'll settle down now to Romans chapter 3 for a few minutes. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And I want to read all the way through verses 21 through 26. Now I think we have the background to what Paul is trying to say to us here when he says that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You wanted to see the righteousness of God? Look at the law. 
But that's not hopeful for us. But what's really great is God has revealed his righteousness apart from the law. There's a way for us to behold God as righteous, and it doesn't have anything to do with the law that condemns us. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us. What righteousness of God? The righteousness of God that comes through condemnation of the law because we've sinned. No, the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Why is it that this righteousness is available to all of us who believe? Regardless of whether or not we've eaten pork, regardless of whether or not we're murderers like David. Why is this righteousness of God available for people like us to deliver us? Because there's no distinction. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jew or Greek? So none of us obtain God's righteousness. None of us are delivered by our own righteousness. We find God's righteousness revealed through faith. Salvation comes by faith, not by works of the law, Paul says. And that's really good news for us because we couldn't do the works of the law. But we can believe. God can open up our eyes and we can embrace Christ by faith. So that means then, verse 24, that we are justified by His grace as a gift. There's no reason God should justify us. You tell me one reason from this past week that God ought to justify you. There's none. If He justifies you, it's a gift by His grace. But that brings up a really thorny question. How does God justify the ungodly? He will by no means clear the guilty. How does that work? Or does the, righteous, does the cross and the gospel prove that God actually is unrighteous? He actually doesn't care to hold men accountable to his law. Is that what the gospel proves? To a Pharisee like Paul looking on, he looks at this and thinks, law says sin must be atoned for. I must bring the sacrifice. I must perform if I'm to be declared righteous. The gospel says, no, you don't. You may be justified without any reason for God to justify you. How does that work? And the answer is this. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's exactly what we thought the problem was. God just swept them under the carpet like David. He sent Nathan the prophet to say, David, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? Sins are forgiven. He passed over former sins. But Christ was set forward as a propitiation to show God's righteousness because he had done that. It needed vindicating. God's name needed vindicating. We needed to see God's righteousness because as we read the Old Testament, it didn't seem like he was righteous. It seemed like sin really did not matter. He would send a prophet and say, your sins are forgiven. God set forth Christ to show his righteousness. And he set forth, set forth Christ, verse 26, 
to show his righteousness at the present time because he passes over our sins too so that he could justify the ungodly who have faith in Jesus but also be just in doing so so that he might be simultaneously just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The background to this passage is the Old Testament sacrificial system. Human sin could not simply be passed over and God's wrath could not just be appeased. I'm sorry, God's wrath could only be appeased by the offering of a lamb on the Day of Atonement. And this ceremony, the transferring of the guilt of the sin to the lamb, the lamb giving up his life, shedding his blood, it was all a picture of something. And we know it was a picture of something because Hebrews tells us that couldn't take away the sins, the blood of bulls and goats. In other words, God was creating a picture for us. It was not actually effective what those bulls and goats were doing in the tabernacle. But God was drawing a picture for us of what would be effective. And all of this, the offering of these lambs, it was all done behind the curtain in the tabernacle. Nobody really saw this going on. Certainly the nations could not look on and think of Israel's God as righteous. No one saw the act of propitiation being carried out. The high priest went behind the veil and sprinkled the blood. That was where propitiation was made. And in doing that, it seemed that God was passing over the sins of his people with no sacrifice required. But not with Christ. Verse 24, God set forth Christ. Verse 25, God set forth Christ. He put him forward. Other translations say he, de- he put him forward publicly. Jesus Christ was crucified along the main thoroughfare that went into Jerusalem. It was a public display. What did God want people to see? God set forth Christ publicly as a propitiation to show his righteousness. In other words, God set forth Christ to be propitiation for us. Was it primarily for pity and compassion upon us? He looked down and thought, oh, those poor miserable people, I've got to do something for them. He loved the world and he sent his son. But the primary reason God set forth Christ was not for our sake. He made Christ a propitiation to show his righteousness. He set forth Christ to vindicate his glory so that we might look on and see God's glory displayed in the cross. God wanted his great name to be vindicated. And so Christ died for sinners, but Christ died for God to display his righteousness. And that, as we've seen, is the primary point of this passage. Romans 3.21, Romans 3.25, Romans 3.26. It was all to manifest God's righteousness. How does the cross display the righteousness of God? How do we see it unveiled in the gospel? 
How does God's act of propitiation, setting forth his son publicly, how does that demonstrate that God is righteous? In the death of Jesus Christ, God demonstrated an unflinching and inflexible commitment to justice. Do not think that God is as we are, prepared to just treat sin as trivial. Think not that he will not judge sin. Think not that his judging righteousness will never fall. It has fallen. His righteousness has fallen. It has fallen upon his son. God simply could not set aside his righteousness in order to save us. If we were to be justified, it would have required for God to step down off of his throne as the righteous judge of the universe, unless Christ redeemed us. Unless Christ stepped forward as the propitiation. And God's commitment to himself, to his own glory, to his name, was too strong for him to simply set sin aside and permit that injustice to pervade this world. Instead, at the cross, we witness the public execution of a man unjustly condemned, but whose death demonstrated to all the world that God is righteous. God was so committed to upholding the standard of his law. He was so committed to meeting out the penalty that sin deserved, that it had to fall. And it fell on Christ, not upon us. No other human being would go to such lengths to uphold the law. And yet God did in sending his own son. But what of the injustice of condemning an innocent man? Pilate condemns a man that he pronounces innocent. And all of that took place under God's sovereign control. Jesus prayed in the garden, Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup did not pass. And so what transpired was God's will. What happened to Jesus Christ was the will of God. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Isaiah 53 says, God was setting forth his son as a propitiation. Was God unjust to let Pilate condemn an innocent man? Under pressure, Pilate succumbed and a man who had maintained a spotless record before God and man was condemned unjustly. Did God let that action stand? Did he let their verdict stand? It's actually deeper than that, though, because Acts 4 tells us that all of this, as we've seen, occurred under God's sovereign control. Pontius Pilate and Herod and all the Jews, Acts 4.27, were gathered together, whatever, gathered together to do whatever you had purposed from before the world began would take place. They were only doing what God had planned for them to do. Was God unjust to will that Pilate condemn an innocent man? Does this mean that God himself is guilty of perpetuating injustice against his own son in seeing that this innocent man is condemned to death at the hands of wicked men? The scripture tells us that Pilate's miscarriage of justice did not stand in the kingdom of God. 
just as a higher judge reviews the verdict handed down by a lower court and overturns it, so God responded to the verdict of that kangaroo court with Pilate at its head. God responded with his own verdict. He reversed theirs. He undid their sentence and he vetoed their condemnation and he raised Jesus Christ from the dead because every innocent man must live in God's kingdom. Every man must live who has fulfilled the law of God. And so in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God demonstrated his unswerving commitment to justice and equity. If you are ever inclined to question whether or not God notices and will set right the injustices that are committed on this earth, look no further than the cross. God has shown that he is righteous. And his righteousness carried him to the length of setting forth his own son as a propitiation to show his righteousness. So how do we live under the righteousness of God? How do we live in a world where this God is the king? There are four things. First of all, the gospel allows us to live confidently. There is no condemnation. None. If Christ has justified, if God has justified us for Christ's sake, there is no way we could be condemned. If God set forth Christ in our place to show his righteousness, then if we answer for our sin, it shows God's unrighteousness. God set forward Christ to display his righteousness so that through faith we might be delivered if we are not delivered. If God's righteous wrath falls twice, once on his son and once on us, God has acted unjustly. And so the cross tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the resurrection is proof of that. This ought to give us confidence before God in prayer. We can come before him boldly. You will be received for Jesus' sake. Not for your own. Your conscience will tell you there's no point in praying. The cross tells you there is. You must. You must pray because Jesus has died. It also ought to give us confidence before others. We don't have to try to make ourselves righteous because Christians are sinners. We don't have to try to hide behind a false front. We don't have to try to say we have no sin. We can live in the full reality of what we are. Sinners justified by God for Christ's sake, not ours. God has acted with saving righteousness toward us and that wasn't a misstep of justice. God has justified you, Paul asks in Romans 8, then who can condemn you? The opinions of others need not plague us. We don't have to live in fear of what others think of us. We can humbly admit our sinfulness. We can confess our sin. We can forsake it. And we can do that time and time again. Because it wasn't the righteous that Jesus came to call. It was the sinner's. The gospel is for sinners. So Romans 8.33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? He's God who justifies. We're still in Romans 3, and Romans 3 gives us two more responses to God's righteousness. First of all, 
The gospel, the cross, allows us to live confidently before God and others. We don't have to live under the crushing burden of our sin, the shame of our sin. But secondly, the gospel humbles human pride. Look with me at Romans 3.27. The gospel humbles human pride. If God set forth Christ to be a propitiation so that he could be just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, then what becomes of our boasting? Verse 27. Got any reason to boast? Excluded. The gospel humbles us. It teaches us that God couldn't justify us apart from God's act of propitiation. We just weren't justifiable. We were condemnable. That's what we deserved. So there's no reason for a big head. Instead, there's every reason for humility. We can line ourselves up with what God says about us, that we are sinners. We don't have to make ourselves out to be something that we're not. We don't have to think something about ourselves that is not true. We don't have to say we have no sin. We can exclude all boasting submit ourselves to the fact that God is light. We walk in darkness. And the only way that we can have fellowship with him is through his son, Jesus Christ. Third, the gospel transcends ethnic boundaries. And as Gentiles, we ought to be incredibly grateful for this. If this righteousness is available as God has set forth Christ as a propitiation to be received by faith, Then look at Romans chapter 3, verse 29. Verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified because of Christ, not because of our own works. So then is God the God of the Jews only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. If righteousness comes by not eating pigs and getting circumcised, and being a descendant of Abraham, then we Gentiles have no hope. But if righteousness is possible by faith, then we have plenty of hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. And that proves that God is not the God of the Jews only. He's the God of the Gentiles also since, verse 30, God is the one who will justify the uncircumcised by faith, Oh, sorry, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. We can offer the gospel and receive the gospel as Gentiles because righteousness was upheld at the cross. We don't have to uphold the righteous standard of the law. It doesn't mean that we don't, don't need to strive to. It just means God doesn't justify us if we do. And he doesn't condemn us if we don't. Christ stands in our place. And that's what we as Gentiles need. We who are unclean before God. And so finally, the gospel gives us security in an unjust world. We live in a world where there's plenty of reason that we ought to have to, that we ought, we we live in a world that gives us plenty of reason to think that we must fight for ourselves. We must care for ourselves. If we don't, This world, with all of its unjust injustice, will overtake us. We will lose out at the end. But our salvation is as secure as the righteous character of God. God didn't bend the standards of his law when he saved us. 
Instead, he gave up his own son in order to be able to act toward us with saving righteousness. His salvation is just. It will never be overturned as long as God in heaven lives. Our salvation is secure because of what Christ has done. If we are the objects of God's saving righteousness, then the magnetic poles of God's judging righteousness and his saving righteousness, the magnetic pole of his judging righteousness is repelled away from us as far as possible. We attach to the pole of God's saving righteousness because of Christ. And so the scripture exhorts us to look at the fact that God will display his righteousness in the future. He's given us every reason in the cross to think that he is righteous. And if he is righteous, then he will set things right in the future. He will vindicate the martyrs. He will judge and make war. And so Paul tells us then we can leave vengeance to God. He will repay. He is a God of righteousness. You know, we face, we live with sinners. We face their threats, their hostility. We face their sin against us. And we feel in ourselves that if I don't settle the score and make this righteous, if I don't exact from them the penalty that they must pay to me for harming me, we think that righteousness will not prevail unless I settle the score. But God says, no, leave it to me. I will repay. And that's why Christians can submit themselves in this world. That's why we can be meek and humble and quiet before the injustice of this world. The only one who really will ever settle the score righteously is God. We don't have to join the fray of seeking to vindicate ourselves, seeking to get what we deserve. God will take care of that. We can live in security in an unjust world. The only way then that we can settle down and have rest and peace in this world is the gospel. It's the cross. You look at the cross and you are able to bear the contradiction of sinners against yourself. You are able to bear their injustices. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Because at the end of the day, you deserve just as much as they deserve. There's nothing in you that means you deserve anything less than they deserve. So if they have sinned against you, you deserved every bit of it. And the only reason that that's ever going to be set right is because God has set his love upon you. He has justified you in Christ Jesus and you can wait for him to make it right. You can respond with meekness and gentleness and quietness to the reproach of sinners against you, just as Christ did. Think of him in the garden. How can he say, not my will, but yours be done? Unless he knows that God will vindicate him. He knows what's coming. Pilate's injustice. How can he lay down underneath that and let Pilate do his worst to him? Only because he knows that God will vindicate him, that God will set it all right. So this is the God that we live before this week. And the cross trains us how to live. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. See God's righteousness displayed. And then live as though there were a righteous God in heaven. Because there is. 
He is the God who set forth Christ to be a propitiation, to show his righteousness. And we can be grateful that God's righteousness is not revealed in the law to us. It is revealed in Christ Jesus. And it is received by faith. Lord God, you have been kind to show us the cross, to reveal yourself to us in the work of Christ. Lord, help us to live before you as you say that you are. You say you are righteous, Lord. And when we look around at this world, when we think about what unbelievers have done to us, fellow believers have done to us, it is so difficult to let that go, to forgive. It is so difficult to, to lie down as a sheep before its shearers. We feel that we will lose, we'll be trampled upon. But Jesus did that. As a sheep before his shearers was dumb, so he opened not his mouth, because he trusted in God to deliver him. That's what they said to him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. For three days it appeared as though you were not righteous, and then, then you proved. You proved that you are a righteous God. You raised him from the dead. And I pray, Lord, that our gazing upon the cross and the empty tomb would fortify us this week to endure. Endure as one who looks forward to the joy set before him. Help us to expect that our lives will take the same path that Christ did, down into suffering, the opposition of sinners against us, and then up into glory. We pray, Lord, for those who are out in the world each day, they see the ungodly, they see them prosper, they see them get the upper hand so many times over your people. It is the ungodly who seem to triumph in this world. They are the ones who seem to prosper, they are the ones who seem to put us down. We seem to be the minority and we are, but only because you want us to look up to Christ and find our all in him. And so I pray for his sake that we would do that. Thank you for showing us your righteousness in Christ. And we ask these things in his name.